You are listening to the National University Podcast. Hello, I'm Kimberly King. Welcome to the National University Podcast, where we offer a holistic approach to student support, well-being, and success, the whole human education. We put passion into practice by offering accessible, achievable, higher education to lifelong learners. Today we are discussing cancer drug development and clinical trials according to the National Library of Medicine as a result of the unprecedented challenges imposed by the COVID-19 pandemic on enrollment to cancer clinical trials. There's been an urgency to identify and incorporate new solutions to mitigate these difficulties. So what they're saying is that the concept of decentralized or hybrid clinical trials has rapidly gained currency and given that it aims to reduce patient burden increase patient enrollment and retention, and preserve the quality of life while also increasing the efficiency of trial logistics. Therefore, the clinical trial environment is moving toward remote collection and assessment of data, transitioning from the classic site-centric model to one that is more patient-centric. Some interesting information is coming up on today's show. On today's episode, we're discussing cancer drug development and clinical trials, and joining us is National University's Associate Faculty Instructor, Brooks Ensign. Brooks has taught at National University for 13 years and has 20 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. Most of his courses are biostatistics courses, and he previously developed and taught clinical research courses for a clinical research degree program at National currently supporting a clinical trial for a drug for leukemia and sponsored by a cancer drug development company. And we welcome him to today's podcast. How are you? Thank you, Kim. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Why don't you fill our audience in a little bit on your mission and your work before we get to today's show topic? Sure. So I'm uh, honored to be associated with National University. I uh, actually took my very first college course from National University many years ago and uh, did serve in the military uh, in the Navy and um, uh, am uh, very um, supportive of National University's mission in providing adult education, uh, especially to veterans and military students. Uh, my background includes teaching for National University in, in um, the School of Health Professions um, and teaching uh, biostatistics, also healthcare finance um, and uh, healthcare administration courses, health economics. Uh, but yes, previously taught uh, and helped develop courses for national in a degree program, uh, a former degree program in clinical research, FDA uh, regulations, reg- regulatory affairs, etc. cetera. Um, so my mission uh, is joint. It's both uh, teaching, uh, but also bringing in my knowledge from my business career in the pharmaceutical uh, and medical device uh, industries. Great. Fascinating. Well, today we are talking about cancer drug discovery and clinical trials. And so, Brooks, how did you get involved with clinical trials? Yes. So after graduating from business school, I joined the pharmaceutical industry, um, not per se in a clinical trial role. I was in a, in a business and finance role. It was actually very interesting, a combination of strategic finance, mergers and acquisitions, 
uh, corporate development, business development, and market research. So uh, my, I was very lucky to be involved with colleagues throughout the company. Um, but uh, in that experience and, and later uh, with other biotech and pharmaceutical companies, I learned that, uh, and as, as was explained to me, really the product, certainly that development stage companies are selling, uh, is not per se the, the pill, uh, but it's actually the clinical data. And often the companies are working in clinical trials for a future product. Uh, and so it, um, the success or failure of the drug and potentially uh, the success or failure of the company is all about the uh, design and, and then execution and results of the clinical trials. So having seen some ups and downs, disappointments and successes in clinical trials, uh, from, from the business side, I, I got more involved um, in understanding the nuances and complexity and then uh, especially in teaching biostatistics and then uh, developing courses for national in clinical research, uh, I learned more about it. Well, that's interesting. And boy, what a time to be involved in clinical trials. What brought you back to National University? Yes. So uh, as I said, I uh, first took a college course actually when I was still in high school on a um, a scholarship with National University uh, in the early 80s. And then uh, after serving uh, as a junior officer in the Navy in the Western Pacific, I went to graduate business school, earned my MBA and joined the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and had I had started to teach for other colleges, but I was um, really excited to learn about an opportunity at National, uh, actually teaching uh, mostly but not exclusively in the biostatistics uh, course, uh, undergraduate biostatistics course. They, one of the um, uh, rewarding aspects of that among many is that uh, that is a prerequisite course for uh, nursing and other healthcare administration programs. So I was able to help people um, succeed in that course and then move on to important things like their nursing degree or, or other healthcare degrees and then help them really uh, launch their healthcare careers. Um, and in particular, uh, some of these students are combat medics or corpsmen from the Navy and the Army. And um, the opportunity to help military students and veterans uh, definitely resonated for me. Oh, I can imagine. Let's take a go back a step and talk about what are clinical trials and why are they so important? So clinical trials, in contrast to, say, case studies or observations or what are sometimes called uh, natural experiments, clinical uh, studies are designed uh, up front uh, to test something prospectively, um, uh, test a a hypothesis. Um, Typically, you have uh, an experimental group and a control group, and that way, you can have more confidence in the conclusion because it was it was tested up front. Uh, so dr- drug development um, has relied for decades on clinical trials uh, and the uh, calculations of statistical significance and uh, clinic clinical um, meaningful data uh, to support uh, the approval of drugs based on safety and effectiveness. Got it. There, and there are there ethical issues in clinical research, and how are those addressed? Yes, um, there are important ethical issues uh, in clinical research. So we're, we're talking about experiments with humans, and so the uh, safety issues are, are very important. Uh, 
there's uh, informed consent, um, where uh, typically there's a long legal disclosure to make sure that uh, the participants, they're called subjects in a clinical trials, uh, in clinical trials are aware of the risks. Um, it's not considered ethical to test something that could be hazardous when there's a safer standard of care. So if there's already a, a, um, an appropriate and re reasonable treatment for something, uh, it's, it creates a higher bar to introduce a new treatment if there's risks with that. Um, some of the interesting eth ethical issues that I've seen, uh, and sometimes the decision is made one way versus the other way. So in a in a um, clinical trial uh, with a control group, uh, in the um, general audience, we sometimes call that the sugar pill or the or the placebo. But uh, better thought of as the standard of care without the experimental drug. Um, in order to have a what we call double blind, um, you want uh, in general you want uh, the uh, patient, uh, the subject, and the investigator to not know whether whether the subject is getting the experimental treatment or the uh, the placebo. Um, that's easy enough when it's a when it's a pill, but in some cases it might. For example, I I dealt in the uh, field of brain surgery, and so introducing the idea of the placebo, the standard of care would require that um, you have a control group receive what's called sham, a sham surgery, uh, so a, a fake surgery such that the patient thinks he or she received the actual surgical treatment. Uh, I heard a, um, and that may surprise people, it make, might, might make people uncomfortable, but I heard a very passionate defense of that approach from a, um, a, a physician who explained that really, um, that's necessary because that's how science has advanced. And, and uh, he actually explained in an article that um, if it weren't for such scientific advances, we would still be using leeches and uh, obsolete treatments from centuries ago that we now know do not work. Um, uh, however, uh, sometimes that's not considered ethical. For example, uh, I participated, or actually one of my children participated in a clinical trial where um, the treatment was delivered with an IV. And so with children to receive a sham IV infusion was considered not ethical. So it's a judgment call that um, clinicians and, and other uh, observers and, and experts make based on the risk benefit and the ethical standards. And I can imagine, yeah, there's a lot of endless paperwork as you are entering into a clinical trial. My dad was part of one. He had uh, pancreatic cancer, and um, it oh, you know it's also yeah. kind of a way to, to give back to the medical. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. But so, what, why is it why is it critical to select an appropriate primary endpoint? So, um, in sports, uh, we know that in order to score. Uh, a touchdown, you need to get the ball passed into the end zone. But uh, in a clinical study, uh, success or failure needs to be defined based on exactly what are we measuring and uh, what uh, difference in that measurement uh, will be considered important. Um, and uh, in a clinical study, that probably a number of um, clinical uh, variables are being measured, 
but but selecting the one that matters the most that's called the primary endpoint and then other things that are measured are are called the secondary endpoints but uh when, when I, i've been involved uh or i've observed the data analysis after a study and and um sometimes companies will say well that it was successful with the secondary endpoint but not the primary endpoint well you have to def- define up front what success is um and so it's critical to define the primary endpoint and it's also should be something that is relevant ultimately to the doctors and the patients uh, that will therefore change the the treatment pattern so you did mention the secondary endpoint um so what's the the difference i guess is my question about between sure. the primary so, and so, the secondary uh, so if you think about like heart rate and blood pressure or so, something like that, so one of those might be the primary endpoint, one might be a secondary endpoint. Uh, it's more complex than that, but those those are two biological measurements, and um, uh, there probably are going to be several biological measurements. Uh, the primary endpoint is is the uh, is the standard that the FDA is looking at for success or, or failure. Okay. So uh, what's the difference between statistically significant and clinically meaningful? And how are both of these terms measured? Yes. So, uh, and this is something that I um, focus on in teaching statistics because uh, the standard that we teach in statistics is statistical significance. Statistical significance means um, um, probably not random. So based on the numbers, uh, is it probably a random occurrence or is it uh, probably not a random occurrence? And typically uh, in our course, but also the FDA and generally in science, not always, but generally there's a standard of uh, odds of random occurrence less than 5%, such that if you say it's statistically significant, it, it could still have happened randomly, but the odds of that occurring are less than 5%. And therefore, we feel comfortable concluding that it didn't happen randomly. However, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it's clinically meaningful. So in order to walk into a doctor's office, or uh, I'm speaking as as an industry representative, or in in order to make a scientific announcement, really, really the entry level threshold is you have statistical significance. So statistical significance, however, does not uh, mean uh, clinically meaningful. Clinically meaningful is, will it uh, change the the, uh, doctor's protocol or therapy? Uh, So for example, if a change in blood pressure of one point, you know, very small is considered statistically significant, that could that could be statistically significant if you have a lot of data. I, I, as, I, as I was told by a senior faculty member when I started teaching this material, um, tell tell the students that anything can be stati- could could be statistically significant if there's enough data. So if you have thousands and thousands of uh, patients or data points, a very small difference could be statistically significant, but may not necessarily be uh, clinically meaningful. Um, another theme I wanted to address in this talk is that, because I focused on, in the title on cancer, and so far I'm really talking about clinical, clinical trials in general. So difference between 
clinical trials in general and uh, cancer clinical trials, uh, actually where I'm working right now, um, cancer, there's urgency uh, because the patients may have a very serious prognosis, if not uh, be a risk of death. Um, and so with cancer, there's uh, the investigators uh, allow more flexibility uh, and experimentation. Uh, phase one in a in a normal a non-cancer clinical trial is is normally considered to be healthy volunteers, so they're not even people with the disease. Whereas, as an oncologist friend of mine said recently, in a phase one trial in cancer, uh, the patients are really the sickest of the sick. So that's a big difference. Um, and then there's something uh, called the crossover study. So, uh, and I teach this in my stats class. Um, often in cancer trials, patients and their family members may really want want to participate in the study uh, because there's a chance that this experimental treatment may actually have a benefit. But in a statistics uh, design, uh, generally you want to have uh, the experimental group and the control group. So that creates an ethical uh, issue in that um, you're trying to help as many people as possible. So there are statistics tools uh, uh, such as uh, uh, repeated measure ANOVA. But anyway, wh where um, you start out with group A getting the drug, group B gets the control or the placebo, say for 30 days, and then for 30 days, there's a washout period to remove remove the effect of the drug. And then, then group B gets the drug and group A gets um, the placebo or standard of care. Um, and that way, uh, you, you can get both your ethical results and your statistics results uh, using this statistics tool. And then another difference is um, in a cancer trial, a phase two trial could be pivotal for registration and approval due to the urgency of getting the drug out to the market. Whereas in other clinical trials, uh, a, a larger phase three trial might be required. Okay. Oh, well, thank you for explaining that. Um, so you just kind of talked a little bit about the different types of trials, meaning the, the A trial and the B trial. Is there, is there uh, another type of trial or is that what you meant by the, um, by the yes. A so it's trial e it's and the B trial and the placebos? Yes. Yes. So in, um, in the medical device field, it's probably easier to think because they, they use simpler terms. There's a... Um, they use, they start out with a smaller trial. They call that the pilot trial. So you're testing something maybe for the first time. There is there isn't uh, a, a prior study. We don't have a lot of information about how the, how the device works, etc. Small numbers, maybe one or two, uh, probably one investigation site. Uh, and then if there's um, encouraging data, then they'll move to a larger, what's called pivotal. Pivotal means that it, it is statistically powered. It's large enough to have statistical significance uh, for an FDA submission. Um, in the drug industry, it's, um, it, yes, it's more complicated. So the phase one trial is uh, first in human. So uh, the drug has not been necessarily uh, used in humans before. Uh, so it's highly experimental. And uh, typically, you're looking for safety to make sure that there isn't uh, toxicity. And uh, yes, uh, uh, it, certainly in cancer, we're also looking for um, 
signs of efficacy, signs of benefit. Um, but you're, it's a smaller study, and what you're doing is basically determining whether it's worth investing and it's worth the risk of moving into a larger study to get more powerful. Uh, by, by powerful, I mean um, impressive statistics that, that will uh, – this word power actually in the statistics world means that uh, you uh, can avoid – you have a higher chance of avoiding um, – the conclusion that the uh, drug uh, didn't work when actually the drug did work. Um, so that, that so a phase two is going to be larger, often focused on and, and with more centers and focused on um, dose ranging to find the right dose. And then ideally in phase two, you have positive data and you have selected your dose. Then um, the, the gold standard that the FDA is looking for is two independent well-controlled phase three pivotal studies. So these are the large studies that typically have hundreds or thousands of patients, depending on the indication and the specifics, in order to get FDA approval. And then phase four is after FDA approval. Uh, Often they're either required by FDA requirements for some sort of post-approval, post-market surveillance, or often they're supported by marketing objectives to expand the use of the drug. But yes, the, the, the stages and phases of clinical trials are, are an important distinction. Okay. So that is important. Um, and I guess, and you kind of talked a little bit about this, the considerations in s- selecting the study population that you said something about safety. Are there other considerations? Yes. So having been both on the patient side uh, uh, with my uh, son who participated in a trial, but then also um, more often, I've been on the industry side. Um, I, we, the investigator or the company, really can't select the healthiest patient for the study. Um, reason being, the healthiest patient who has the mildest condition um, doesn't necessarily have the urgency and probably is adequately treated by the standard of care, the existing drugs, or at least uh, doctors are going to try that first. On the other hand, uh, you may have to start with the sickest patients because that's where the urgency is, the patients who have failed other therapies. However, you don't want the worst of the worst because, um, or the sickest of the sickest uh, because in that case, uh, the, the patients have such a poor prognosis that it, um, it, it may not be uh, a good chance to show success with your drug. So somewhere in the middle is ideal. But for example, I can speak a little bit about my my current um, company. Uh, We are dealing with um, third-line, relapsed refractory, uh, advanced uh, uh, leukemia, Uh, so very sick patients. Um, And then the the hope would be to move into earlier stage where the broader market is uh, with data that supports that. Um, And so that's a a typical... um, approach in studies, uh, certainly in cancer, but in other types, is um, show benefit, say, in the more serious disease, and then try to expand the market by moving into a larger patient population. Okay. And that makes sense. What So the issues to address in the basic study design, what are those issues? Yes. So um, number of patients, uh, and that relates to power. So I, 
I I tell my students that uh, again, power has a statistical definition about avoiding a, a false conclusion. Uh, but typically, uh, the power of the study is the size of the study, and so. My my day job in in the industry is usually in finance, so power then relates to um, cost. Because if you add more patients and more more sites to the study, it becomes more and more expensive. Something that's already expensive is more expensive. Length of treatment: how how long uh, will the patients, the subjects, receive the treatment? Uh, how often uh, will they be treated? How often will will they be tested and measured? And then the amount of follow up. So some uh, some studies can look at uh, the acute treatment and and uh, short-term follow-up. Some studies require a long-term follow-up, say of years rather than months, which then makes the study more difficult to fund and um, uh, a longer time frame. Uh, randomization is important. Uh, how is it actually going to be double-blind to both the investigator and the patient, et cetera. How many subgroups, how many, how many investigation sites? So yes, um, uh, these are uh, a number of issues in study design. Wow. Well, you have certainly been sharing some great and in- interesting information. We have to take a quick break. Uh, so to stay with us more in just a moment, we'll be right back. And now a national university tip on getting started. For me personally, I knew I wanted to pursue an education due to what I wanted to do in in life. But if I had to look back at somebody in my same position, I would tell them, for one, get rid of every reason why you can't go to school. Just deciding and then committing to it, the first place to start is, what do you enjoy? What do you care about? And if there's a degree that you know you can translate that into, then let's go after that. If you're unsure, talk to somebody who's currently in school. If you're serving with somebody who's going to school, talk to them about it and what their experience is like. The thing is, I truly believe as far as the general education, it's a perfect time to develop an understanding of what you wanna do. It helps you figure out what you wanna do. There's always going to be room to adjust, to make changes. And so looking at anybody who was sitting in my position and they're thinking about going to school, I would tell them to go down to that college office. They can guide you and, and help you figure out what it is or ways that you can make it happen. Now back to our interview with National University's Brooks Ensign, and we are discussing cancer drug discovery and clinical trials. And Brooks, thank you for sharing the knowledge that you have both, you know, really with your son's uh, situation and then also for teaching this and then really letting us know uh, about clinical trials. And I guess my next question is, how do we manage the randomization process? Yes. So randomization is important because uh, you want uh, group A and group B, the the experimental and the control group, or or if there's se- several groups, to be uh, comparable. So um, uh, comparable age, comp- comparable uh, disease state, uh, comparable mix of genders and, and ethnicity. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's going to be um, retrospectively possibly um and this, this is reported in the study to show all these various traits um 
uh, including medical traits, to show that the groups were comparable. Otherwise, a critic would say, well, of course, uh, group A did better because um, they were healthier or younger or, or thinner or whatever. And so ideally, the randomization process produces groups that are comparable. So there's different, and so there's a uh, stratification where you have different uh, assignments. Uh, but uh, ideally, uh, and, and unfortunately, um, no randomization or assignment process is going to be perfect. So there is a chance that group A might be younger than group B. There are statistical techniques that can, can control for that as the term is used. But ideally, that, that type of difference is avoided in the assignment process. Okay, so can you briefly describe the blinding process and how does this apply to cancer research? Yes, so um, in, in general in studies, uh, we want both the doctor and the patient to be uh, unaware of whether the patient is receiving the experimental drug versus the placebo. The reason is, is that um, the, it, it could impact the results if the um, observer, the uh, investigator uh, thinks that it's the experimental drug, might think that the results are better. And even with the patient, uh, the patient, uh, there's something called the placebo effect, and the patient may have, um, say, psychological conclusions uh, based on thinking that he or she is getting the experimental versus con the control drug, and that, that may that may impact the variables measured. So I, ideally, nobody knows. Um, this may not be possible, as I, I again, I talked about uh, uh, the ethical aspects if it's an invasive treatment. And also in cancer, uh, uh, my experience is that in general, um, all the patients in the beginning are actually patients with the disease uh, because there's an urgency of seeing how it uh, works in, in that particular patient type. And so then the comparison is to um, hist what we call historical controls or literature-based controls, how, how the investigators think that patients uh, would do without the drug. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sample size and how that's determined? Yes. So there are various factors that go into that. Um, it, it's critical because, um, again, I approach this often as a finance person, large sample size requires more money. And it, uh, all of this is a lot of money, but it may be uh, an extreme amount of money and time. So the, the determinants of sample size, really, the, probably the number one determinant is how um, different do you think the experimental uh, treatment will be versus, uh, versus control? If, if, you, if you think that it's going to be a noticeable difference um, with, with less, and the other Fact, another key factor is variability. So if there's less variability and there's an, a profound difference between the treatments, then that, that can probably be measured with a small sample size. On the other hand, if you're talking about lots of variability in, in biology, we, we generally think of clinical data and, and hu human data as having variability. And then a more modest, um, what we call effect size, then that's going to be that's going to require a, a larger sample size in order to 
uh, be powered for the appropriate con- conclusion. And is that what is considered a baseline assessment? Well, baseline assessment also is something that needs to be done up front. So um, baseline assessment is understand at the beginning um, what were the patient variables. Uh, so uh, at the very end of my statistics, my intro biostats class, uh, there's a, an example in our materials of uh, a back pain study, but really it could be any anything, but this happens to be a back pain study, uh, group A, group B, and group C. And I asked the students, uh, who's going to do best uh, in this study? And uh, it seems like a silly question. No one's going to know, but we do know the people who have less back pain at the end of the study are probably going to be the people who had less back pain going into the study. So if they're healthier going into the study, they're likely going to be healthier coming out of the study. So that's the measurement at baseline in order to understand the difference. Are the patients comparable, et cetera? Really understanding what the, what are the patients like uh, as we go into the study. Okay. That makes sense. Interesting. How does the recruitment of study participants differ in cancer and uh, in cancer trials from other trials of clinical? Yes. So um, would, um, again, uh, talk about how in general clinical studies at first, uh, the phase one trials in healthy volunteers and in cancer, it's patients who urgently uh, probably want the treatment. Um, But uh, what I've seen on the industry side is in order to um, help the drug treat the appropriate patient, you're often looking for a very specific patient profile to make sure that um, the odds of success for the drug to ultimately help patients is supported by the treatment of the right type of patient. So it's a difficult judgment call. Okay. Uh, so every every case is different, I would imagine. Um, yes. And what about how survival analysis used in clinical trials? Yes. So ultimately, uh, uh, as family members or as patients, the, the goal, right, is survival, living longer. Um, and so that, that's yeah. called overall survival. Or another type of survival is progression-free survival. It may be measured in years, uh, in which case uh, that would be a great benefit. However, sometimes in cancer, it's measured in months. One issue with survival, uh, and I I think I'll talk about this a little bit more, is uh, survival is uh, a skewed data, a a skewed variable. And so there's the need to focus on the median rather than the mean for statistical considerations, because the mean is skewed by the small number of outliers who have high survival. However, another issue is that measuring survival may take a long time, and the the industry, the investigators are trying to determine success faster than uh, watching for a slow variable like, like overall survival. So that leads to what we call surrogate or proxy endpoints, something that can be measured more quickly, uh, say a cellular or a biological assay or some you know blood test or something, a marker that, uh, for example, uh, a what we call a complete response um, that may we hope um, uh, correlate 
with longer survival, but it's something that we can measure up front. However, um, sometimes I've seen companies get in trouble by uh, aggressively marketing their surrogate marker when actually um, the patient's goal and, and you know the FDA's goal is ultimately uh, cure or overall survival. So would that be something with like having issues in the data analysis? Is that where this is leading to? If you've seen some of these uh, yes. so, the statistics? Uh, so yes, in the data analysis, for example, and, and I, I was given an example by a, a friend who's an uh, oncologist, uh, the survival. So just like with um, income and wealth, those are positively skewed data points, uh, or variables, excuse me. So uh, most people with income are somewhere near the middle, but uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, et cetera, are way out uh, in the very high income category, right? Not many of those people, but they have a lot of income and wealth. So we call that skewed data. So when you talk about income or housing values, income, generally we talk about the median um, it's better to use the median versus the mean because the mean, the average, is skewed. It's it's pulled away by the the outliers on on the high end. Uh, so survival data is the same way in cancer. Um, uh, most patients probably have some kind of small result, but maybe a few patients have a uh, dramatic increase in survival. Okay, so. Uh, but what's more representative for the family and the patient, uh, it, it, the new patient, uh, you know, you can hope to have one of those uh, extremely good results, but it's probably more likely to have a typical result. So um, uh, I teach this uh, with reference to a, a drug where the difference in mean survivals was uh, quite dramatic, but the difference in median survivals was modest. But the uh, I, I, what I understand from oncologists is this is uh, often understood, and they really the FDA uh, should focus on the median rather than the mean due to the statistical issues with the mean. But um, the company was able to get the FDA to look at the difference in mean survival, which was much more dramatic, and uh, and therefore to get the drug approved based on that. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So regulatory issues in cancer clinical trials versus other types of trials, what are those? So I've seen that, I would say you're dealing with uh, the urgency, uh, the need to get things to the market faster. Oh, and also there's, there's, but there is more, yeah, therefore more latitude, uh, both in study design and uh, treatment decisions by the physician, because if the patients are really at the possibly at the end of life, everybody wants uh, to do whatever we can to help these patients. So there's, there's more latitude. Oh, and, oh, and something I should say is that a top officer at the FDA in the oncology area uh, has encouraged this greater uh, latitude and, and earlier decision-making. Uh, and actually, it's suggested that this has led to uh, earlier approval, so it's made it's uh, been uh, beneficial. Something that I've dealt with recently is something called the FDA's Project Optimus. Uh, Project Optimus is an FDA initiative to encourage companies or require companies to to study more doses early on in order to uh, select the best dose 
of a targeted therapy. So, um, for example, in the study that I've been dealing with recently, we've talked about the Project Optimus requirements to identify the dose um, with more careful consideration of, of uh, various doses. Wow. Okay. That's, I mean, again, you're seeing this in uh, real time. So that Project Optimus sounds really interesting. Uh, what problems have you seen in clinical trials personally? Yes, I encourage students uh, to look at um, a website, um, improvingmedicalstatistics.com. Um, and the, there's other sources, but um, and this has examples for students, every, everything from high school up to graduate school. But it basically chronicles, um, un, unfortunately, there's... Um, mistakes, bad designs, incorrect interpretations, in, uh, uh, in, in, incorrect conclusions, incorrect comparisons. And this website chronicles these and, and uh, helps. What I, in teaching biostatistics, I try to encourage students to be, um, encourage their critical thinking uh, and uh, not just listen to a conclusion, but think about what were, was the study design? Is this an appropriate um, study design, appropriate conclusion, et cetera. And this, this, I think this website is uh, interesting to read because there's a lot of examples of things that should have been done differently. And uh, is, Brooks, is this what your company is working on right now? What are you doing? Yes. So my company, um, don't want to say too much about it for sensitivity, but my, mm-hmm. uh, my company is a public company, Aptos Biosciences, and our clinical work is in uh, severe leukemia, uh, acute myeloid leukemia, uh, and our uh, experimental drug is um, being used with uh, in third-line relapsed refractory patients. So they've already, unfortunately, failed other therapies. Uh, so this is really the sickest of the sick, the most urgent um, prognosis for leukemia patients. I actually have a friend. Uh, who I, I, I had a friend, excuse me, I, I lost three years ago to aggressive leukemia. Um, she, it was about a week between her first doctor's visit and her passing. Um, and so w- when I work on this study or support this study, uh, it, it means a lot to think that we could do something to, to help such patients. So um, I did have a, a little well, quotation are... from our company. Uh, it's a phase that. one, two open label study for relapse, relapse refractory leukemia. Um, and in a recent announcement, we, we are announcing dose expansion uh, in combination with another drug, venetoclax, and we're encouraged by uh, our early data. Uh, and um, there's more information on our website, but we're hoping to uh, expand the use uh, and expand our clinical trials uh, in combination with other drugs uh, and be able to treat more patients and, and show successful data and ultimately get the drug approved. Well, I wish you the best of luck with your company. You are doing God's work there and um, looking for um, that cure. So I, I do wish you all the best and I thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. And if you want more information, you can visit National University's website at nu.edu. And thank you so very much for your time today, Brooks. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to the National University Podcast. For updates on future or past guests, visit us at nu.edu. You can also follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.